Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. This morning, each one of you came into this room with an invaluable possession. Interestingly, that uh, valuable possession goes where you go, and it also goes where you do not go. Furthermore, what you think of this valuable possession may not be what others think of it. Uh, I'm speaking this morning of your reputation. You may have a reputation that is good or bad. It may be positive. It may be negative. But rest assured of this. All of us have one. People will watch you. People will talk about you. You can count on it. And the fact is, you cannot escape or lose your reputation. It precedes you. It goes with you. And it also follows you. Charles Spurgeon, in speaking to this issue several years ago, reminded those of us who are faithful followers of Jesus that we are constantly under uh, a microscope. Uh, We do live in a glass house. Spurgeon said it this way, the eagle-eyed world acts as a policeman for the church. It becomes a watchdog over the sheep, barking very furiously as soon as one goes astray. So be careful. Be careful of your private lives, and I believe your public lives will be sure to be right. But remember that it is upon your public life that the verdict of the world will very much depend. I've discovered in recent years that not only is the world uh, an eagle-eyed observer of uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, but brothers and sisters in Christ are also uh, eagle-eyed observers of us. I've also come to understand that uh, as much as we would like to, we cannot control what other people say about us. Uh, We, in a free society, uh, with technology, with blogging, with all that is a part of the 21st century world in the year 2012, we really can't control what other people choose to say about us, even if they are confused With the facts, Uh, we still cannot control what may come out of their mouth. But we can control what we say. We can control what we do. And we can choose how we will respond to those who have perhaps what we consider to be a a faulty and an accurate, a jaundiced uh, understanding and reputation of who we are. And so... Uh, This morning, I'm, by the way, uh, in my ninth year, starting in January, I will begin my tenth year here at uh, Southeastern Seminary. I thought it might be a good time for us to reflect both on uh, where we've come from, uh, to reflect upon uh, who we are, and also to be very intentional in trying to help people understand what we intend to be uh, for the future. 
So the title of my message, as you see on the screen, is Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. What will be our reputation? Take your Bible and join me in the short letter of 3 John, where we will read all 15 verses together. My goal this morning is to make five uh, exegetical uh, observations from the text and then make seven particular applications to Southeastern Seminary uh, at this particular point in time uh, in our history. Uh, Though it is not stated that John is the author, I believe that the one who penned the Gospel of John, the Epistles of John, and the Book of the Revelation also penned this letter as well. And he writes, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified uh, to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Verse 9, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes who loves to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that. He refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to, and he puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone, and from the truth itself, we also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face-to-face. Literally in the Greek text, it says we will talk mouth-to-mouth. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, every one of them." Five observations from the text about what Southeastern's reputation, I pray, will be. Number one, it is my prayer that we will be known as a seminary that seeks to walk in truth and not in error. He begins by emphasizing the word truth. It will occur five times in this book. It occurs, you see, clearly in verse 1, again two times in verse 3, and a fourth time in verse 4. The elder he uses here a phrase, I believe, a, a term that refers to his uh, age and his maturity, the authority that he rightly has as an apostle and one who has cared for and loved the church of the Lord Jesus. And he writes to someone that he calls Gaius, a beloved brother whom he says, I love in the truth. And then he begins with a prayer on behalf of Gaius, and the prayer indicates possibly that Gaius had been suffering from some physical malady and had some illness because he writes, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. In other words, John says to Gaius, I'm going to pray that God will make you physically healthy to the same degree that you are spiritually healthy. Now, let me ask you a question this morning. What if I were to pray that prayer for you and God were to answer that? 
What if I were to pray for um, Bruce Ashford? Dear Lord, make Bruce Ashford healthy physically to the same degree that he is healthy spiritually. Now, would he be fit? Would he be in bed? Would he perhaps be nearly dead? I don't know what the answer to that question is. God alone knows the condition of our heart and soul. But John was so confident that Gaius was a man who loved the truth and walked in the truth that he could voice that kind of prayer for him. In fact, he says, I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to the truth, as indeed he will say it twice there in verse 3 and verse 4, as you are walking in the truth. Verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children, perhaps John had even led Gaius to Christ, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. That's an interesting figure of speech, isn't it? I thought truth was something that we believe. John would say, no, truth is more than that. Truth is something that you live. Vance Havner was a wonderful North Carolina evangelist, a very witty individual. And and Dr. Havner said concerning this issue, uh, what we uh, live is what we really believe. Everything else is just religious talk. What we live is what we really believe. Everything else is just religious talk. Talk. It is my prayer for this student body and for this seminary faculty that what we believe will match up with how we live and how we live will be an expression of what we believe because the two are interconnected. I think, of course, when he talks about walking in the truth, he is talking about walking in the truth of the gospel, that he understood clearly the person and the work of Jesus Christ and all that flows from that. I'll speak more to that in just a moment, but I do pray that we will seek to walk in truth and never be deceived to walk in error. Secondly, We will seek to care for others more than we care for ourselves. In verses 5 through 8, he addresses the issue of traveling evangelists, traveling missionaries that had been sent out by John to spread the gospel throughout the Mediterranean world. And so he says to Gaius, beloved, it is a faithful thing. It is a good thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are. In other words, though they were brothers in Christ, uh, Gaius, until the moment of meeting them, did not know them, had not had any prior acquaintance with them, and yet he treats them like family. He treats them like brothers and sisters. In fact, he says in verse 6, they testified to your love before the church. And so as a result of that, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. One man paraphrased that phrase by simply saying this, Gaius, uh, just keep doing what you're doing. What you've been doing has honored the Lord. What you've been doing has blessed these brothers. What you've been doing has extended the gospel to those who previously had not heard. Again, a great question for all of us to ask ourselves this morning. Could God say of your life right now, just keep on doing what you're doing? You're walking so faithfully with Him. You're serving Him so well. You're loving Him so passionately. You're caring for the lost in such an intentional way that He could say to you, just keep on doing what you're doing. Indeed, He says of these traveling missionaries, they have gone out for the sake of the name. Interestingly, that's the only time 
that there's a direct reference to the Lord Jesus in this particular letter. Of course, we know that the name that John is referencing here is that same name that Peter preached about in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, where there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. And note what he says there very interestingly. They have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Here he is not speaking so much of their ethnicity as he is their spiritual status. In other words, to, to paraphrase it, he would simply say, they've accepted nothing from the lost. Uh, they have not attempted to finance God's program and God's plans with the monies of lost people. And let me remind us again, God does not want us to beg lost people for their money. Unfortunately, that's what many people think church is all about, that we're after their money. No, we don't have anything we want from them. We have something wonderful to give to them. And so if God's work is to be done, it is to be done by God's people. And so he says, they've gone out for the sake of the name. They accepted nothing from the lost, nothing from the pagan world, nothing from unbelievers. Therefore, we ought, there's a moral imperative there, we ought to support these people, support them like these, that we may be fellow workers in the truth. How can we summarize what he's saying here? Simply this, when it comes to reaching the nations with the gospel, when it comes to reaching our neighborhoods with the gospel, number one, we all pray. We all ask God to break our hearts for the lost that are everywhere present around us and around the world. Secondly, we also all give so I can't give much. I don't care whether you give much or not. You ought to give what God leads you to give. You ought to do as Paul would direct us in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9 to go to the cross of Christ, look at that cross, and then seeing how God has given, you give in response to that. No, we don't give legalistically. We don't give under some type of obligation. As Paul again says, we give cheerfully, we give gladly, we give joyfully, and we give sacrificially because we really do believe that heaven and hell are real and that Jesus is the only difference. So we all pray, we, we all give, we all witness, and then some are uniquely sent. Uh, I was checking yesterday and discovered that uh, at the end of this academic year, we will send out 28 units through our 2 plus 2 program to take the gospel to the unreached around the world. As of right now, in 2014, we'll send out 42 units to take the gospel to the unreached around the world. And as of right now, in 2015, 38 units are scheduled to go out to take the gospel to the unreached around the world. And I, and I rejoice in all of that, but I will tell you this. As I was reflecting upon that uh, yesterday, I thought, wouldn't it be nice if I could put a one in front of each of those numbers, that we would not be sending out 28 units, but 128 units. We would not be sending out 42, but 142. We would not be sending out 38, but 138. Is that really too much to expect of a seminary with 3,000 students? And so, again, I would challenge you, as I regularly do, you should not be praying this morning, Lord, should I go? But rather, every one of us should be praying, Lord, why should I stay? Every morning I get, uh, before I arise, the uh, report of the day from uh, the uh, uh, Joshua Project. Today, uh, the people group that we're praying for are the Sonar of India. 7.5 million Sonar Indians Pray for the following. There are few, if any, believers among this people group. Seven and a half 
million people, one unique people group, no believers among them. Might it be that God intends for you to go and to take the gospel to that people group that they might indeed gather around the throne with all the other tribes and all the other tongues and all the other languages and nations to praise the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? We will only do that if we care for others more than we care for ourselves. Number three, it is my prayer that we will seek to cultivate humility and not pride. Recently, I was in Louisville, met a Ph.D. student uh, there at Southern Seminary who came up to me and said, can I just ask you, give me 10 minutes of your time? I said, sure. He said, what do you think, if I'm going to be a good servant to the church, uh, is the greatest uh, threat uh, the, the greatest danger, the, the, the potential hindrance that could keep me from being effective for the Lord. And I said, well, that's easy. Pride. Pride. Pride easily attaches itself to those of us who are blessed with the opportunity to receive a lot of education. Pride easily attaches itself to those of us who live in the world of the academy of academics. And if you're not careful because you are learning a lot, you can become puffed up. Uh, you can become arrogant. Uh, you can begin to look down your condescending nose at that pastor under whom you were saved and called, but he just doesn't really exegete the text very well, does he? And you know, his theology is just a little lightweight, isn't it? I mean, he, he doesn't think very well in, in theological categories. My goodness, he's never read John Piper or, or Tim Keller. or He doesn't read Mark Dever's books or any of things like that. And, and if you're not careful, you begin to think that you're more spiritual, more godly than he is. When the fact of the matter is, in my own life, the most godly man that I ever knew was a man with a fifth-grade education who was a farmer in Douglasville, Georgia, my granddaddy. Not a heavyweight intellectually but a heavyweight spiritually. And if you're not careful, you can develop and cultivate the spirit of a diotrephes. Look at what it says there in verse 9. I've written something to the church. Evidently, John had written a letter that is no longer available to us today. But diotrephes, and he begins a litany of descriptions of diotrephes that gets worse and worse and worse as you walk through them. First of all, uh, he likes, he loves to put himself first. By the way, it's the same phrase that is used in Colossians 1:18, where it says that there's only one who is to have the preeminent position, and his name is Jesus. Diotrephes actually wants to have the position that only belongs to Jesus. Not only that, though, he does not acknowledge our authority. He kicks John to the curb. So if I come, I, I will bring up what he is doing. And what was he doing? He was talking wicked nonsense. He was a liar. Uh, he was a deceiver. He misrepresented uh, who John was and what John believed. And not only that, not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to, and he even puts them out of the church. Imagine this morning if I, by some miracle of God, could have arranged for the Apostle John to be our preacher today. Now, this is a decent crowd. I mean, it's not spectacular, but it's a decent crowd. But imagine the Apostle John was set to bring the message this morning at uh, 10 o'clock. I, I suspect, this is just, just a suspicion, that there'd be a few more people to hear John than Danny Aiken. Just, 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 you know, just something that I kind of speculate would probably be the case. In fact, I, I strongly suspect 
that like some uh, of these uh, sports fanatics, and of course you all know that I love sports, but the place would freeze over before I'd be in a tent outside somewhere freezing my you-know-what-off to get tickets to watch some sorry basketball game. I'm not going to do that. She said, well, I did. Well, you're dumb, okay? You know, there are people that just simply have a lack of intellectual firepower that helps them make good rational decisions. And so I'm not going to go camp out to watch anybody, certainly an ACC football team. But anyway, that's for free. That's for free. But anyway, I will tell you this. If I had arranged for the Apostle John to be here today, I would have been willing to stick a tent out there so that I could get in here in time to get a seat. Because I don't think there's any question that we not only could fill up Binkley Chapel, we probably would have been wise to get uh, the, uh, the arena downtown where State plays basketball. No, no, no. Actually, we probably should have tried to get their football field because I assure you we could have packed that place out. Here's my point. Diography said we don't need someone like that. He has nothing for me. Uh, He's old. He's past his prime. Uh, John's ready for, if not the nursing home, the funeral home. What we need now are the young guys with the new ideas. As fifth, new is always better. Be careful, my young brothers and sisters. No, John had something that we all need all the time. And yet Diotrephes was so proud of himself and so puffed up with himself, he said, no, don't need John, don't need his boys coming to propagate his message. And he even put out of the church those, he said, you're not welcome in our convention. You're not welcome in our denomination. Why don't you go down the road and join another group? And be careful that uh, you cultivate humility and not pride. Number four is my prayer. We will seek to imitate what is good and not as evil. It's interesting how John puts this together. He has on one side uh, this wonderful man, Gaius, and now he has on the other side this wonderful man, Demetrius. It kind of brackets out this not-so-good guy in the middle by the name of Diotrephes. Beloved, verse 11, do not imitate. We could translate it mimic. It's an imperative, by the way, a word of command. Do not mimic or imitate evil. But, but mimic, imitate what is good. And John, by the way, recognized we all mimic and imitate somebody. And we all have heroes that we, we look up to. And the fact of the matter is, I strongly suspect that Diotrephes was a very persuasive, gifted, uh, powerful personality. And it was easy to be swayed by his oratory and swayed by his appearance and swayed by his, just his presence. And so John says, be, 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 be careful. You're easily seduced into wanting to follow someone like Diotrephes, but, but don't do that. Rather, go after someone like Demetrius. Threefold witness is given to Demetrius, by the way. Uh, he receives a good testimony from everyone. Not that everyone agreed with his theology, but everyone knew that he was a man who walked with God. Not only that, he has received a good testimony from the truth itself. His life is consistent with the gospel. Uh, He looks like a gospel-saturated man. And we also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. Folks, listen, I know that ultimately and rightly we have one supreme role model, and his name is Jesus. 
But the fact of the matter is, what did Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1? Imitate me as I imitate Christ. We all have heroes. We all have people that we admire and that we look up to. Just make sure that you're discerning and, and you work diligently to, to imitate those who look a whole lot like Jesus. Then fifthly, it is my prayer that we will seek to build others up and not tear others down. Here you have the final concluding remarks of John as he says, I had much to write to you, but you know what? Sending an email, sending a text message, uh, using a box or a tail, that's not going to do it. I have much to write to you, but I, I would never, rather not write it with a pen and, and with ink. I, I want to see you soon. I want to see you face to face. Indeed, in anticipation of that, I extend both peace to you and, and I greet you. And let me encourage you to greet all of our friends, every one of them. So, there are my five exegetical observations. Now, very quickly, how do I pray that this will apply to Southeastern Seminary and what we will work hard to be known for? Number one, it is my prayer that we will always be a seminary that adores and worships the Lord Jesus Christ. It is always going to be my prayer that we will be a Jesus-intoxicated seminary. You see, Jesus really needs to be at the core. Jesus really is the the hub out of which all the spokes of your life are going to flow. And, and this much I do know. What you believe and think and, and, and the heart that you have for Jesus is going to permeate the rest of your life. Recently I've read some really interesting things that some really strange people have said who think they're gospel-centered and gospel-saturated. And, and they say things like, well, you know what? Uh, having sex with my girlfriend before marriage is not really such a big deal. After all, we're so free in Christ. Really? I've had others say to me, you know, pornography is not really such a big deal. After all, I've been redeemed by Christ. I have my identity in Christ. So it doesn't really matter what I do with my eyes and, and with my mind. Really? Really? You, you really can, can get that out of, of the Scriptures? You see, when people talk like that, I discover very quickly that they don't know the gospel as well as they think they do. This much I do know, they don't know Jesus as well as they think they do. Because the closer you get to him, the cleaner, the purer, the more holy you want to be. Because you have to be. No, 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 no. You just want to be. And by the way, impurity is never welcomed in his presence. So it is my prayer that we will indeed be a, a gospel-saturated seminary that worships well the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly... I pray that we will be a seminary that always stands without apology on the inerrant and the infallible Word of God. I put that one purposefully after number one because here's the deal. Ultimately, and this battle is coming back around, okay? Just let me go ahead and warn you, and I'm not a prophet, but within the next couple of decades, this generation will again have to fight the battle for the Bible. We began that fight back in 1979. Normally it runs about a 50 or 60 year course cycle, but things happen a lot faster now. But here's the bottom line. Russ Bush, for whom our Faith and Culture Center is named, was my philosophy professor at Southwestern Seminary. He made a statement when I was sitting where you sit, I didn't understand it then. I understand it now. He said this, ultimately, <clears throat> the battle of inerrancy is a battle of Christology. 
The battle over inerrancy is a battle of Christology. And what he went on to say was, and now I understand it, what you believe and think about Jesus will determine what you think and believe about everything else. And if you indeed believe Jesus to be the eternal, sinless Son of God, then you cannot help but be an inerrantist. You say, why? Because he believed the Bible was inerrant. He believed the Bible was infallible. He believed not a jot or a tittle would pass away until all of it is fulfilled. And so it is my prayer that these students who are here before me today, these students who come to Southeastern Seminary, will never waver even one whit on their affirmation of the inerrancy and infallibility of the Bible. I'll tell you this, it will be over my dead body before we ever hire someone on this faculty that does not believe in inerrancy. And let me say this to all of you. If you ever reach a time in your life where you begin to walk away from inerrancy, do the world a favor and walk away from the ministry. You're not fit for the ministry. You're not fit to lead the church of the Lord Jesus Christ if you question even one element of the truth of his word. Yes, we affirm its authority and we also affirm its sufficiency. The battle for the Bible may have been won by Southern Baptists in the 1980s and 1990s, but the war for the Bible will not end until Jesus comes again. Be ready to fight this generation's battle for the Bible. Number three, I pray that we will always be a seminary known for its passion for the Great Commission. I know that many of you, maybe most of you are here because of that. You, you know that we aspire, we strive, we work hard to be a, a great commission seminary. Now, that doesn't just mean that we care for the nations. It also means that we care to teach all that Jesus taught us. We, we take theology very seriously. But we think theology is taught best under the umbrella of the Great Commission when we're thinking constantly about how to extend the gospel to underserved and unreached areas of America and around the world. To be very clear again, uh, in recent days, over the last couple of years, there have been people who either ignorantly or maliciously, I don't know their heart, misrepresent this school. Uh, It is now popular among some segments of the SBC to say, well, Southern Baptists have six seminaries and they have two Calvinist seminaries and they will drop into the Calvinist category, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, Let me be crystal, 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 crystal clear. I have no intention of building a Calvinist seminary. That will take place over my dead body. I am interested in building a great commission seminary where those who love the Lord Jesus, who love the gospel, who love the nations are welcome to come and teach as well as come to study. I said it to a group of folks yesterday, if by some miracle of God I could bring back from the dead Charles Spurgeon, I'd be willing to let Charles Spurgeon teach preaching in my faculty. I think that would probably be a a pretty good call. Actually, believe it or not, I was talking to a guy on the phone three years ago, and he said, well, I have to be honest with you, uh, Dr. Aiken, Uh, I so disdain Calvinism, I wouldn't hire Spurgeon. And in my very sweet, gentle way, I said, well, then you are a fool. And he is a fool. If by some miracle of God I could bring back from the dead William Carey or Adoniram Judson, I I think I'd be willing to invite them uh, to teach missions uh, at our institution. No, there is a form of Calvinism that I find very distasteful, 
the kind that is arrogant and smug and condescending, the kind that doesn't have a heart, a hot heart and a broken heart over lost people, the type of heart that would not even walk across the street to share the gospel with someone screaming to the top of their lungs, what must I do to be saved? That kind of Calvinism needs to be banished to the graveyard where it rightly belongs. But there is a form of Calvinism that's very evangelistic, uh, very heart-warmed, very committed to trusting that God indeed is going to call out people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, and they are delighted to be a part of God's agenda in doing that. And so just keep this in mind. J.C. will always stand for Jesus Christ at Southeastern Seminary and never John Calvin. Just understand that. And yet at the same time, it's not an issue here, is it? I mean, it really isn't. That's one of the things that kind of disturbs me, and I try to invite folks. In fact, I will call them. If I hear that someone is saying that, I track them down, and I invite them. Come to my campus. I'll pay your way. I'll put you up. I'll feed you. You meet our students. You meet our faculty. And you know what you'll discover? You'll discover the same thing that our accrediting agencies did last spring when we met with them, both from ATS and the Southern Association of Colleges and Schools, sat down in my office and said, well, you know, there are a lot of things we can say about your seminary, but one thing is clear from student to faculty to administration, from janitor to president, it's very clear what you're about. And I said, well, would you mind telling me? And they laughed and they said, you are a great commission seminary. That is who we are. That's what we're always going to be by God's grace and for his glory. Let me hasten. Number four, I pray that we will always be a seminary that is devoted to expository preaching that is gospel-focused. I know there are many different models out there, and there are even some people that say you can't build a great church on expository preaching. I believe you can't build a great church unless you have expository preaching. And so we'll never apologize for the fact that we believe the only faithful model to rightly divide the word is a model that takes the Bible book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, phrase by phrase, word by word, and finds the glorious portrait of Jesus in every book of the Bible. Number five, I pray that we will always be a seminary that loves the local church and its brothers and sisters. Your generation is well known for your great love for Jesus. Your generation is not well known for your great love for the local church. In fact, some of you almost have a disdain. You almost sneer. And in many cases you say, well, it's just not that important. That really? Again, I like what some of my friends have said. It's pretty difficult to love Christ and not love his bride. I know his bride is not pretty, but then neither are you or I. Have you looked in the mirror lately? Have you examined your own heart lately? Yeah, the the church is filled with sinners. But sinners saved by amazing grace. And God did not ordain the seminary. God did not ordain wonderful campus ministries. God did not ordain the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association or Samaritan Person. I'm going for a long time. God did ordain his local church. And therefore, it is my prayer that we will always have a great love for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why I'm so thrilled about our equip ministry that now has a partnership with more than 130 churches where we partner together in doing what I think is the best form of theological education. I pray that we never lose that passion. Number six, I pray that we will always be a seminary committed to healthy, biblical, and balanced theology witnessed in our confessions of faith. You may not know this, but we are utterly unique in that we don't have one confession of faith. We don't have two confessions of faith. We don't have three confessions of faith. We have four confessions of faith. The abstractive principles, 
the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, and the Danvers Statement on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Yesterday, we elected Chuck Lawless to be the new dean of our graduate school. This morning, we elected <clears throat> Jamie Dew to be the new dean of our college. And in both of those interviews, I asked those men, do you know well our four confessions of faith, and can you affirm them without mental reservation or hesitation? And each of them said, absolutely. And so I pray that we will always recognize the importance and the necessity of having a good, healthy, biblically balanced theology that I think is witnessed well by our confessions of faith. I do believe that the Baptist Faith the Message 2000 is a sufficient canopy under which Southern Baptists can work well together to get the gospel across this nation and to all nations. I don't think we need anything more narrow than that. Finally... It is my prayer that we will be a seminary that knows who the real enemy is and what hills are worth dying on. One of the things that we try to teach you all when you're here, especially those of you that, that are young, not every hill is worth dying on. There's some battles that just aren't worth fighting. But then there are others that are worth fighting and even losing. In fact, even if you knew in advance you were going to lose you still fight that battle. I, I, I will spill my blood and your blood over inerrancy. Uh, I will spill my blood and your blood over the deity of Christ, his sinless life, his penal substitutionary atonement, and the fact that he and he alone is the only Savior. Uh, I will spill my blood and your blood over issues like racism. In fact, I'll be glad to spill your blood over that particular issue. And where there's still that racist impulse within the life of the Southern Baptist Convention, we stay the hand of God's blessing. No, there's some battles that are worth fighting, and there's some battles that are not worth fighting. I'm not going to fight over whether or not you wear a suit when you preach on Sunday morning. Now, I'm in a suit today. Some of you make smart-alky comments about it as I came in. I'll be in my cargo pants and my golf shirt tomorrow. Praise Jesus. That's where I will be back tomorrow. Last Sunday, I preached, two Sundays ago, I preached in a church. They said, you need to wear a coat and tie. I wore a coat and tie. Glad to do so. This coming week, they said, please come casual. If you wear a coat and tie, you'll be the only person in a church of a thousand in a coat and tie. Well, I'm just going to make a statement and wear my coat and tie. Yeah, I'm going to make a statement that I'm an idiot. <laughs> I'm not going to fight you over the style of music that you have. I sing in, I, I don't sing. I, I, I go to churches. Praise God, I don't sing, but I go to churches that have organs and they have choirs and nice robes and I go to churches that do music just like we did today. Here at this seminary, we do music in different kinds of ways. The, the issue is, is it exalting Christ? Is it gospel-centered? Is it faithful to the Bible? Whether it has a drum or not, I don't care. Whether it has an organ or not, I don't care. It, why would we fight over things like that? Isn't it amazing, as Tom Elliff has well said, we can contextualize the gospel around the world, but we can't contextualize the gospel within the borders of America. Shortly before he died, my hero, and some of you have heard me say before, the greatest man that I personally ever met was Adrian Rogers. I hurt deeply that so many of you never knew him, never heard him preach. He, he might as well have died 50 years ago when he only died about five years ago. Greatest man I ever knew. Most godly man I ever knew. I had the joy of being in Memphis with him, and he took me out to lunch, as he always did whenever I was there. And 
We were sitting at lunch, and I said, Dr. Rogers, I have some concerns right now about the SBC. Yeah, we've come through the battle for the Bible, but right now it just seems like we're stuck. And in fact, it even seems like we're losing ground. And it seems like there's a lot of uh, bickering and a lot of ill will, and I, I, I just not, I don't understand why. And he said, well, I can explain it to you. He said, during the battle for the Bible, we were out on the battlefield fighting an enemy that we knew if he could, he would kill us. He would take us down and destroy us. And when you're on the battlefield, now don't miss this. This is so, the wisdom here is just so great. When you're on the battlefield, you are shoulder to shoulder fighting a common enemy. And you don't really worry about little things. Because in light of the battle that you're engaged, those little things just don't matter. But he said, you know what, Danny? We're not on the battlefield anymore. We're now back on the base in the barracks. And if you're used to fighting, if you're not fighting the enemy on the battlefield, you'll fight your brothers and sisters in the barracks. And he said, what Southern Baptists need to do is get out of the barracks, get back on the battlefield, engage the real enemies of hell, sin, the devil, and death. If we'll get back on the battlefield and fight the real enemy, these little petty differences that are really more preferences and not biblical issues at all, they'll just fade away. We won't even notice them. So Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, it is my prayer for each and every one of us, myself included, that we will not find ourselves in the barracks. But we will find ourselves until Jesus comes again out there on the battlefield, not fighting our brothers and sisters, but fighting the real enemy that does so much harm and so much damage both now and for all of eternity. There is a real enemy. It's not your brother and sister. It's the devil. We need to be out there engaging his forces, knowing that we don't fight for victory, but we fight from victory, a victory that is proclaimed very, very loudly by an empty tomb. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving me the joy of, of leading this wonderful school. I really don't lead it. I just work alongside of others that are so much more gifted and smart than I am. And, and I just try to get out of the way. And please help me to continue to do that. And I thank you that you give me the chance this morning just to share my heart and kind of just map out for our, our board of trustees and our, our dear friends on the board of business and our students and faculty and administration who we are. And what my prayer is, we will be in the days ahead. And Lord, I do want to be fighting not my brothers and sisters. I want to be fighting the real enemy. And I want to be used by you to extend the gospel to the more than 6,000 unreached people groups that constitute more than a billion people who have been born in a place, who will live who will die and go to hell and not even hear the name of Jesus unless we are obedient and faithful to the commission that you have given us. Lord, there's a good um, stirring of the soul. Uh, there is a good, I can't sleep at night. And that comes when our heart is wed to yours. So, Lord, may we never rest 
May we never be at peace unless we are about the business of the kingdom and fighting the real enemy whose goal and desire is simply to send men and women to hell by the millions. Lord, use us to stop that and use us to send the gospel to every people on this earth that they too might know the Lord Jesus Christ that we've come to love, worship, and adore. Do it, dear Lord, for your glory. And we ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.